Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We were going to be speaking with Brad Galloway, who was a national leader of the BC-based neo-Nazi group Volksfront. Uh, but um, Mr. Galloway is unable to join us, but he has uh, put us in touch with Tony McAleer, who was also uh, an extreme on the extreme end of the spectrum, of the right-wing spectrum, and was a neo-Nazi and uh, had a, quite a reputation in this country. And Mr. McAleer has kindly uh, agreed to step in. Tony, thank you so much uh, for the time. And I just want to ask you, uh, uh, give us a little bit about your background, how you got involved with the skinhead movement and then the far-right movement and the extremist movement. How did you get into this? Well, I think I got into it the, the way I think many young men and, and women um, got into it. You know, I had some stuff going on at, at home and at school when I was uh, when I was a child. And, you know, I walked in on my father with, with another woman when I was 10. And that was when the, the God fell off the pedestal and my world was really rocked. And I felt uh, sort of angry, betrayed, a whole, a whole swirl of emotions. And I went from being an A-B student at an all-boys Catholic school to being a C-D student. And uh, after all kinds of attempts with, uh, with the carrot to get my grades up, uh, the, my parents and the school decided that they would try and beat the grades into me. And I was hit on the rear end with a meter stick if I didn't get an A or B on major um, tests and assignments. And that um, caused me to become very angry, very rebellious. Went from listening to Queen and Elton John to The Clash and the Sex Pistols. And I found my way into uh, into the punk scene. I went to a boarding school in England for a year, and that's when I got introduced to the skinhead scene. And and when that turned political, uh, when I was back here in in the early '80s, early to mid late '80s, uh, I went I went with that political change. And because of the notoriety I got, and the sense of power, I got power when I felt powerlessness. I got attention when I felt invisible and I, uh, I got acceptance and, and when I felt unlovable and those sort of core psychological reasons are the reasons people join. And it's the seduction of ideologies like the white supremacist movement. So, and you did find yourself in front of the Canadian human rights commission, I believe in 1994. Let me, uh, let me ask you this as horrific as the El Paso, uh, shooting, uh, is, was, Dayton was a little bit different as far as the background of the, uh, the shooters is concerned. But as horrific as the shootings are, and the national concern about the suspected murderers, Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod, does what happened shock you, or given the proliferation of hate groups and radicalized homegrown terrorist threats, are you not surprised by this kind of violence taking place? No. And, you know, let's, let's not forget um, uh, Gilroy, California. Right. That's only 10 days ago, and already it's in the rearview mirror. Yes. And we've forgotten that it's happened, and that's the challenge. It's becoming normalized. And I think with the, the, the you know, there's a culture that exists online and, you know, in 8chan and 4chan and, and the hidden recesses of the Internet that, 
encourages and and supports these types of things and I, you know we're getting sort of copycat crimes and we're getting you know it's happening more with more frequency and so i'm not surprised that it's now it's happening in clusters not you know one every, one every couple of years and then one every couple of months and now it's happening in clusters i think um i think young young men uh, are in a, a crisis of masculinity and i think uh there's there's a lot going on there and you know if you look at the statistics in the united states um the suicide rate amongst white men is is at epidemic proportion, so much so that it's shifted the life expectancy of the entire demographic of white men lower. Everyone else is increasing, um, but it's going lower. Now, it's still five years more than, than a black man, which is a problem, but there's, uh, Princeton's done some fantastic studies about okay, uh, let me, let me, let me despair. Let me ask you this question. How are the confirmed white supremacists reacting to hearing that 21-year-old Patrick Crucius drove 10 hours from Dallas to El Paso with the intent of murdering people who appear to be Mexican or of Hispanic background? How are the confirmed white supremacists reacting to that? I think most of them, if not overtly, secretly will be cheering it on. Do they? You know, when, yeah, go ahead. When, you know, back in the 80s when, uh, you know, when the order... Robert Matthews and and his uh, gang of neo Nazis were murdering radio talk show hosts and are doing armored car robberies. They were folk heroes. Do, do know, they were? Do the, sorry. Do the hate groups use this kind of horror to their advantage? Um, it, it's certainly not you know great in terms of marketing, but I think in in terms of. Uh, uh, in terms of normalizing the violence and, you know, spinning a narrative around the violence, it certainly, there's ways that it can be spun internally uh, to, to take advantage of it. Okay. So how did you start to get out of it? Started with the birth, the birth of my, my daughter. And I was still up to my neck in that whole world when that started to happen. Um, and they, but they began a process of, of change and the thawing of my heart because I was completely disconnected from my heart, operating pretty much from pure narcissism and, and ego. And I couldn't connect to my own humanity, let alone anyone else's. I truly believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of how disconnected and internally dehumanized that we are. And the, my children were the spark that helped to reconnect me slowly to to my humanity. It's safe to love a child, and the reason that we become cut off because it's not safe to be open. And you know, when we're when we're young, and uh, that started a, a process. But you know, and that leads to the sort of the first step of leaving, which is disengagement. You know, we leave the the groups and the social circles and all of that behind. But when I did that, I still had the ideology. You know, I didn't, I didn't give that up. And the challenge for, for young people is ideology and identity become intertwined. You know, it wasn't that I believed in white supremacy. It was who I was. So when you come across a young person and you want to sort of argue the morally or factually about immigration or equality, 
um, it's often ineffective because what you're doing is you're challenging their whole identity and the ego defense mechanisms. Okay, now you say that times like this are an opportunity for parents to communicate with their kids. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, sort of the issues I was, you know, talking about earlier, it's not, a, it's not about the ideology. There's usually an underlying grievance. Maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not. Um, what, they, what they're doing to solve their grievances is completely offside. But there's, there's underlying issues that need to, be, need to be addressed in order to remove the foundation from which the ideology, ideology rests. I mean, statistics show that, you know, there's often, you know, the number one correlated factor in the history of people joining violent extremist groups is childhood trauma. So you've got you've got underlying issues that are creating the anger, the resentment, the despair. Right. And it's we take that anger, resentment, and despair, and we either internalize it through self harm or we externalize it into violence, white supremacy, gangs. There's all kinds of ways that we do that. So the parents need to be talking to the kids before they show up with the skinhead haircut Absolutely. and the tattoos, right? It, it's it's too late. They've got to they've got to start an open dialogue with their children as early as possible and provide a safe space and be honestly curious about your child and how they see themselves in the world. And I think if you can do that and invite those regular uh, sort of sessions with your child without judgment, you can catch it when it's, uh, when it's starting to shift or it's starting to, to okay. go sideways. Tony, I have just a few seconds left. Sure. Is that hate life ever truly gone or do you have to remind yourself regularly about why you left? Like substance abusers who remind themselves daily of how long they've been sober. Right. I, I don't think uh, once you're, you're connected back to your humanity, once you've gone through the healing work, um, the, I can't go back. It's, it's not, a, not an option. And, you know, I said to someone, I'd, I'd rather lose my life than lose my soul. And, and uh, you know, once we're we're connected to our humanity, there's no there's no going back. And I believe no one is irredeemable, and everybody has um, has the possibility of a life after hate. Tony McAleer, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for stepping in for your friend Brad Galloway. Pretty much appreciated. Thank you, Tony McAleer from uh, British Columbia was also very heavily involved with the uh, with the extreme right um, white nationalist racist movement, and. Uh, yeah. Wise words. Kids and parents need to communicate. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.